0: And good morning and welcome to the good life we're going to talk about what it means to follow Jesus in loving obedience and do a life of good works because our hearts are becoming good in him today we are actually beginning a journey together with through an expositional study that word simply means that we are going to work paragraph by car- paragraph very carefully thought by thought very caref- carefully through this thing called the sermon on the mount Matthew's chapters 5 6 and 7 and it will take us weeks yay months to make us all the way through this journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, these few chapters had been called the greatest speech ever given by the greatest man who ever lived. And so the words are ultimately profound and ultimately life-changing if we will understand them correctly and embrace them with our hearts. Uh, I appreciated the opening video. I love the work that this church did to prepare their people for the series out of this portion of scripture. And I loved how they talked about just how unique the word of God is, particularly in this portion found in Matthews five, six, and seven. Just think about it with me for just a moment. So here we have about a 17 minute speech that encompasses just under 2,400 words given by the son of a carpenter on the shore of Galilee 2,000 years ago, and yet no one spoke more clearly and more profoundly into the reality of our world, into the reality of our country, into the reality of our community, into the reality of our families, and even the reality of our own lives. And what makes Jesus' words here so ultimately profound is that rather than simply looking at behavior, he is going to the heart of the matter, and the matter of the heart is what he focuses on. I love the words found in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Listen, it says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Somebody interpreted it a little differently and said, because it determines the course of your life. We are going to take our time. We are going to walk carefully through the words in this section together. And we are going to see the power of Christ unleashed, I pray, in each of our lives. So, What I'm going to ask you to do right now is something you are going to hear me say repeatedly over the next number of weeks and months together. Take your Bibles and join me today in Matthew chapter 5. If you're not in the habit of bringing your Bible, I want you to get in the habit over these next weeks and months together of bringing the Scriptures with you. Because we're going to speak straight up from the word. And I want you to underline things and circle things. I want you to write things in the margin that impress you. That God is working on your heart and life about. And what I hope is over the course of the next weeks and months we are together. That the oils from your hands will mar up this part of your Bible. And make it look all yellow. I wouldn't even mind it if a few tear stains hit these pages. As you wrestle with what it means to honor God with your life. I want you to have your copy of the Bible with you. As we do this journey together, it will make it more valuable for you. So, Matthew chapter 5 today, and we are going to begin with kind of an overview, if you will, of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, In the next few minutes, we're going to talk a little bit about the cultural realities of Jesus' day, what gave rise to the message. And then we're also going to look a little bit at who the message is actually designed for. That's important. This message is designed for a particular group of people, and I wanna talk about that. And then lastly, we're gonna talk about what makes this message so ultimately powerful. Because there is something about these words that go beyond almost any other words you will ever read anywhere that have the ability to change your life. And we're gonna talk about that, too, this morning. Now before I say anything more, perhaps the wise thing to do would be to shut up and pray. So let's, let's bow our heads in the presence of God together. Let's go before the author of what we're about to consider. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you didn't just orphan us in this world and leave us to our own devices, but rather you've given us your word to understand who you are, and who we are, and how we can live lives that honor you. And I just want to admit, Father, that I am not worthy to teach and proclaim the truths that are set forth here. But I pray that beyond my words will be the words of the Holy Spirit and the words of the text and that you would lodge them in our hearts and lives in ways that I could never design or plan and that you would get your will accomplished through this time. So, Father, um, right now I ask for help. The help of the Holy Spirit, the original author, to take your words and bring them to bear on our hearts even today may this journey be remarkable in every one of our lives i pray thank you father thank you that i know you hear us and that you answer prayer in jesus name father amen amen again Uh, I think perhaps the best way to really appreciate the letter is to kind of do a bit of an overview to kind of give us some context to appreciate where all this is coming from and what he is saying and what it really means and so we're gonna begin by considering if you will this uh, sense of context together we're gonna look at the context now in Matthew chapter 5 we have two opening verses that kind of help set the context a little bit but we're gonna need to inform them a little bit more so they say this Matthew chapter five, verses one and two. Seeing the crowds, Matthew writes, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, or actually it's a high hill, and he sat down. Now, when a rabbi is is saying things of authority and importance, he will sit down. That is a, a, a visual for those who are his followers to stand up and listen. So the teacher sits down and the students stand up. That's how it works. And so Jesus sat down because he was about to say something of authority and something very profound. And his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, Now, who are the crowds? Why were they there? What were they expecting to hear? In order to understand who the crowds are, and this is important because it actually does even speak into the context in which we live today, I want to invite you to turn back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to kind of get a running start to get up into chapter 5. So Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. Now in my Bible, it says above verse 12, Jesus begins his ministry. So let's start there, shall we? In verse 12 it says this, Now when he, Jesus heard that John, who is John the baptizer, had been arrested, Jesus now withdrew into Galilee. Now, Galilee is in the north. The Sea of Galilee is in the north. The Jordan uh, River kind of comes down, and uh, in the south is Jerusalem. So he's withdrawn to the north of Israel in Galilee, and it says he left Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is his hometown. It's where he grew up as a kid, where everybody knew him from. And he left there and he went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of the tribes, the original 12 tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. So what Jesus was doing is he's now 30 years of age. At 30 years of age is when a rabbi would start his ministry of being a teacher and gathering disciples. So Jesus is 30 years old. He has chosen to make the Sea of Galilee in the town of Capernaum, which is in the north of the Sea of Galilee, where the um, Jordan River enters in to the the, the Sea of Galilee. Right there, he chose to make that his base of operations. And so here he is. He's starting his ministry as a rabbi, as a teacher. He's chosen Capernaum as his base of operations. And as any uh, rabbi would do, he has a message. And we see that in verse 17. So this is his message. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your sin, turn from your lives, turn from what you believe to be true, and embrace me, because the kingdom of God, the promised kingdom is coming. This was his message. And again, as a good rabbi, he now goes and he starts to gather some disciples. In verse 18, it says this. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, again, this was his base of operations. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. One was Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So here's Jesus walking along, and he sees these two guys, Simon, who will be, he'll later call Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And these guys are what? They are what? They're a fisherman, which means they were funkies, okay? You see, every child in the Jewish nation, every male, would grow up through the school systems and grow up to understand the Torah and memorize all of the words of the first five books of the Bible, and then they would move on to study the the Psalms and the poetry, and they move on to study the prophets. By the time they got about 13 years of age, the question was, is this student bright enough to go on to become a disciple of an important rabbi, or does he not contain the gray matter that would help him to do that? And so these guys, at 13 years of age, flunked out. These guys went back to the family business, and they were to learn the trade of their father, so they were fishermen. So there are these flunkies, and Jesus is walking along the sea, and he's a new rabbi, and he goes, you, Peter, or or, uh, Simon, you and Andrew, come, follow me. And what does it say they did? Oh my gosh, they threw down their nets. I'm done, Dad, we're gonna go follow this guy. And you know what his father would have thought? Where are my workers going? No, that's not what they would have thought. They would have thought, what an honor. Our sons were flunkies. And now they've been taken up by an important rabbi, and they're going to be his followers. This is awesome. The family loved it. And he goes on just a little further, and he picked up two more guys. These guys' names were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, There's a a good chance, again, that uh, these guys would have been Jesus' cousins in the flesh. Their mother was Shalom, who was likely a a sister to Mary, his mother. So he knew these guys. They knew him, and he came along, and he said to James and John, Come and follow me. And immediately they left the boat uh, and their father, and they followed him. So again, this was an honor for the family. Oh, good, our sons have finally gotten beyond just the family business. They're now going to be important disciples of a rabbi doesn't get any better than that. Now here we go. Jesus has begun his ministry. He's headquartered in Capernaum. He's called his disciples. He has a message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In verse 23, this is where the crowds come from. And he went throughout all of Galilee, this is the northern part of Israel, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom and healing. Notice, would you get that? Thank you in healing every disease and every affliction among the people." Whoa, every disease, every affliction? So his fame began to spread all throughout Syria, which was north of the Sea of Galilee, modern-day Syria, Damascus and they brought him sick from afar those who were afflicted with disease and pains and oppressed by various diseases um, demons epileptics uh, paralytics and he healed them all and great crowds began to follow him from Galilee the region he was in in northern Israel from Decapolis which is actually over the Jordan River to the east of Galilee actually means 10 cities from Jerusalem in the south, from all of Judea, and beyond the Jordan, probably Perea and other places on the other side of the Dead Sea. So all of a sudden, Jesus has this immense following. All of these people were coming from everywhere. He was healing people. We've never seen anything like this. He has such a profound message. He's he's an important rabbi. And they all had one thing on their minds. Could he be the guy? Could he be the promised one of God? Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the anointed one, the Christ? Could he be the one who is going to come after the lion of King David and become that political, that political and military leader who's going to again exalt Israel to his position of prominence in the world? Could this be the guy? Great crowds were coming. And he went up on a mountain, and he sat down. He was about to say something ultimately profound. And they were all with bated breath listening. Shh! he's about to say something. You see, the situation in their day that made it so challenging uh, was this reality. You see, uh, Israel was far from being free in those days. Israel was under occupation by a a foreign hostile power. They were being subjugated by none other than the the weighty infantry and, and, and military might of Rome. Israel wasn't free and they couldn't do what they wanted. And so the question was, is he going to be a military leader? Is he gonna set us free from this occupation? Is he ultimately gonna liberate us? Is that who he is? They're listening, they're wondering and on top of the realities of an occupying force and all that that meant, uh, there was also an oppressive, an oppressive amount of tax being put on the people. If you were an observant Jew in those days, you were probably given for the maintenance of the temple and, and the maintenance of Yahweh worship somewhere between 25 and 27% of your income. That's what it took between the tithe and the various sacrifice and offerings that the people would bring to maintain the temple worship of God. So they already had this huge burden, though they didn't see it that way. This was to honor God. But when the military might of Rome came in, they also brought taxes with them. Isn't it funny how that works? And so they came in, and they added tax upon tax to these people, these people that were barely eking out a life. And so they brought on something um, called a a, a property tax. Now, it's a property tax in that whatever you owned and sought to move around the country, they would tax you all along the way. And when you sold it, they would tax you. And that's what Rome was doing. They were taking in taxes because they had a huge military machine that required a lot of money to keep running. So they were taxing the subjugated people, the Jews. And then on top of that, there was a poll tax which was like a head tax. Every single person had to pay a tax for simply being in the country, and that was to actually pay for the occupying force to be there subjugating them. Stank. It's a lousy situation. It's a horrible mess. You have a hostile government government, and overburdening taxes. Do you know of any people group like that? Curious, isn't it? The more things change, the more things remain exactly the same. You see, Jesus was about to speak into his day and age, but what I want you to understand is what he spoke to them then is what we need to hear today. It actually applies perfectly to where we find ourselves today. Now, the challenge in Jesus' day is there were lots of fragmented opinions as to how to deal with this hostile environment, with this overburdening tax uh, realities. And so there were various religious leaders who people looked up to for, what do we do? How do we respond? How do we live in the realities of today? And so some of the popular opinions uh, were from the various religious groups. One group was called the Pharisees. How many of you ever heard of the Pharisees? Yeah, yeah, the Pharisees were the guys that we see as bad guys, because Jesus was always pointing them out. But actually, in their day and age, the Pharisees were actually the conservative guys. These were the Bible believers. And so the Pharisees in that day were saying simply this, if you want to experience God's blessing on the nation of Israel again, what you must do is you must, you must go back to the good old days. You need to go back to the Torah. You need to go back under the Mosaic law. You need to embrace the 613 commandments and live them out in a heartfelt way before God. And then you will know God's blessing on your life. Okay, so we're under this boot of Rome, and we've got all these burdensome taxes, and this group is saying we need to go back to the Torah. Okay, but there was another group, and they were called the Sadducees. Ever heard of the Sadducees? Yes, they were Sadducees before they didn't believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees were another group, and they were actually the liberals of the day. They were the progressives of the day. And their words were, no, you don't go back. We no longer live back then. We live today. You need to embrace the realities of today and accept them for what they are, and let's modernize and become progressive. So their words to the people of that day were, not go back, but go forward. We need to go forward and just make the best of what we got. Okay? Well, there was another group of people called the Essenes. The Essenes were actually the isolationists of their day. Uh, They were people who chose to give up on the, the Jewish world and actually withdrew into the desert where they made their own unique communities where they felt they could worship God. So they basically were saying to everybody, if you really want to deal with the realities of today, what you need to do is not go back, not go forward. What you need to do is get out. You just need to get out of there completely. It's, it's corrupt. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Run. Join us. By the way, John the Baptist was most likely an Essene. There's a good chance he would have come from one of those desert communities. That's why he was a bit of an oddball when he showed up in the city. He's like, who is this guy? Camel hair coats and all that weirdness. Yeah, so he was one of those guys. And then there was another group. One other group. So there are the Pharisees, the conservatives, who said we need to go back under the law. There were the uh, Sadducees who were the progressives and liberals who say, no, we need to move forward. There were the Essenes who said we simply need to get out and isolate ourselves from all that's going on. And then the other group were called the Zealots. What do you think their information for the people was? We need to overthrow the occupying force. They were the nationalistic group of Israel. If we're ever going to know freedom again, we need to take on the Romans. We need to drive them out of our land. We need to thwart them and tear down the institutions that they're building. And so their words were simply this, go against them. Go against them. Now it doesn't take a great deal of thought to realize that Though generations come and go, though countries rise and fall and the names change, and though the names of the various leaders change, those four very prominent viewpoints are at play in our country today. You know, we are in a time where our country is in turmoil. You see it out on the, the campaign trails as all these various voices are trying to say various things. And people are carving up into very definite, the very definite pockets within our country. And some people are saying, we need to go back. We need to go back. And I would call these people the constitutional conservatives. These are the people who say, we need to go back to the founding document the way it was written and the time it was written and interpret it from the way it was written by the original fathers. We need to go back to the good old days, the days of the fathers. Then we have the uh, liberal voice today, the progressive voice today. No, 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 it's a living document. We're meant to interpret it in the light of the day and age in which we live, and we go forward from here. Let's be progressive. And then we have those people who are the ones that say, oh no, it's too late, it's too late. Get out while you can. And so these people are called preppers, aren't they? You know, we get out into the woods somewhere, we dig a deep ditch and fill it with food and get our gun and grab our loved ones. Hang on, because the end is coming. Either zombie apocalypse, or we don't know. You know, and so there's that group of people. Isolate yourself, run. And then again, there are those who say, no. We need to take up our arms, and we need to go against a corrupt government, and we need to overthrow the government. And there are today, militia movements all over the United States, where people are are saying words like this, and their document that they all hold onto is the Second Amendment. Yes, 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 it says that we are to have arms and we are to keep them in case the government turns bad on us, and our goal is to overthrow the government. I just want to say this before I go any further. I uh, grew up uh, on a farm, and I had a 22, a 222, a 243, a 30 odd 6, a 3030, and a 308. I had two over and under shotguns, 12 gauges, and multiple pistols. I shot tens of thousands of rounds growing up as a kid okay i got i got certified with a handgun over at the nra building in in virginia it doesn't get any more sanctified than that okay so i just want to say i get the whole second amendment thing but what are we supposed to do as the people of god today what is to be our response in light of what we see going along going on in the political realm around us Are we supposed to go back? Are we supposed to go forward? Are we supposed to simply get out? Or are we to take up our arms and start killing people? What's the response? This is where the people of God were back in Jesus' day. We don't know what to do. And so, the crowds have come. Jesus has gone up into a high place, kind of a natural amphitheater. He sat down in the mode of authority, and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and everybody was listening. Everybody was waiting. Everybody wanted to hear what he was going to say. And this is what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed or happy, the favor of God rests upon the meek, for they are the ones who are going to ultimately inherit the earth. Blessed, happy, contented, the favor of God rests on those who hunger and thirst for what is right. Blessed, content. Happy, the favor of God rests on those who are merciful because they're going to receive mercy. Blessed, blessed, blessed. What? What? Jesus, help me here. I came up here to hear how to respond to the realities of the day and age in which I live. I thought you were a rabbi who was going to tell us what to do. Some people are saying go back. Some people say go forward. Some people say get out. And some people say let's take up arms and defeat them. Let's go against them. What are you trying to say, Jesus? Well, maybe this will be a little clearer. Jesus began to preach from that time forward, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or or maybe this helps you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy, heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's rabbi talk, by the way, to, to disciples. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What are you saying, Jesus? I don't want you to go back. I don't want you to go forward. I don't want you to get out, and I don't want you to take up arms. What I want you to do is I want you to get Right? I want you to get right with God. You see, what he is saying here is simply this. The problem that has resided in every people group since the beginning of time, which makes his words so pertinent today that even though they were spoken 2,000 years ago, is the heart of the problem has always been the problem of the human heart. And until a heart gets radically transformed and changed, you are not going to see the blessing of God come in either into a life, a family, a community, or the country. You will not win by taking up arms. You will not win by simply going back and trying to do everything you used to do. You will not win by simply becoming progressive and moving forward. It is as you are willing to get right with God by coming to Christ in faith, which I believe the Beatitudes are all about. We'll actually talk about that next week. It's when we get right, people of God. It's when we get right with God and then become righteous In our living, that we now become a potent influence in the world around us. Jesus went on to say this, you are going to be the salt of the earth. You are going to be the light of the world. Listen, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What the country needs today is not anarchists or isolationists or conservatives or even liberals. What the country needs today is a people of God who are right with God and living in righteousness with their neighbors, showing them the beauty of God so they likewise will glorify God with their lives. It is one heart at a time. You cannot change people by law from the outside. It happens by liberty and the gospel from the inside. That is how it happens. Uh, It is simply the case. You can't change society through a political ideology. You cannot change society by adding more laws. You can only change society by changing the hearts of the people who compose that society. That is simply how it works. So as we get right with God and we become righteous in God, which makes us salt and light, what does that even mean? Well, that's where the Sermon on the Mount really starts to get practical. You have heard it said in chapter, uh, verse 21 of chapter 5, you have heard it said of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable of judgment. Okay, we know that. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable of the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable of the fire of hell. What? Yeah. Part of the radical transformation that happens in our lives as we come into the authority of Jesus Christ in our lives, is he begins to change our desires, our longings, our wants. The reason why we get so angry at people the reason why we get so mad at the people who, who, who are going to ruin our nation as we feel it's going to happen is because we have certain expectations and certain goals that we want for our lives and our kids' lives. But what if they aren't God's? It's only as we come into alignment with God and his desires that we can actually look at other people and have compassion on them. Look at other people and be peacemakers in, instead of getting angry, which would be the normal recourse. So we're peacemakers. It also says this. You have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her, his heart. And so what Jesus is saying there is, I want you to be people of integrity. I want you to so love your mate that you prove the reality of the oneness, of the image of God in a husband and wife relationship. It is so beautiful that it's compelling to those around you. What's the secret of your relationship? What makes you so different? It's Jesus. He radically transforms us. We become salt. We become light. The world is bland and dark. We're salt. We're light. That's what makes the power of God unleashed in a people and in a nation. He goes on to say some radical stuff like this. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We want justice. But I say to you, do not resist the evil one. But if anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek. What's that? not natural. It's not normal. It's supernatural. It's being the people of God as God has called us to be. And then this last one. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Seems right, reasonable, doesn't it? Love your neighbor, hate your neighbor. Na- well, maybe your neighbor's your enemy. I don't know. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What? What? This is going to be a life-changing walk for us. This truth is radical. But if we get it, we understand it. Our relationships with our wives and our kids will be revolutionized. It will revolutionize our communities that we live in. It will revolutionize our church. It may revolutionize our country. I like what one guy said, and I thought he said it so well. Do you remember Bartholomew, our little buddy? Uh, We thought we said goodbye to him last week from that series, uh, Risen. I'm gonna resurrect Bartholomew one more time. I just want you to hear what he says as he's being interrogated by uh, uh, Clavius. Because what he says is exactly where we need to be. Well, we are few for now. And our only weapon is love. But this, well, this changes everything. What are your intentions? Uh, why do you fear him so? This empire means nothing to him render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. That's what he taught us. Our only weapon is, you got it. You say, really? Our only weapon is love. Yeah. Now, I just want to kind of finish the story with Israel real quick here. Um, Sadly, Uh, When Jesus came to Israel, his people group, they failed to receive him. In fact, they rejected him and they murdered him. So I want to tell you what happened to Israel. In 70 AD, the Roman authorities were so tired of this constant thorn in their side, they sent a Roman general by the name of, of Titus to Jerusalem where he came in and he wiped out the city and so destroyed the temple, burned it, and when the gold melted out of the instruments, it says that they went down into the stonework, so they literally pried the entire temple mount apart. They destroyed Jerusalem because they failed to turn to the one who would redeem them and make them right with God and righteous in the lifestyle to affect other people. And so there was actually this group of people who, in fear, ran to the summer palace of Herod on Masada, overlooking the Dead Sea. And there they all ran up there, and they, they kind of uh, secluded themselves. Rome came to track them down, and they had to build an earthen ramp to get up to this high point. While they were building the ramp, it took months. They were starving to death on the top. And ultimately, when they broke through the walls, they discovered that everyone in Masada had committed suicide. That's the story of Israel. They failed to embrace their Messiah, their anointed one, the righteous one, and become righteous. And so their nation got wiped out. But I want you to understand the gospel had the last laugh. Because by 300 A.D., God's people were so living out the ideals and the realities of this thing called the Sermon on the Mount that the Roman Empire in 300 A.D., it became the official religion of the then-known people around the Mediterranean Basin. The gospel did that because their weapon was. You got it. You know this country that we have, we love so dearly, we want to preserve for our families and relatives. We wouldn't be here today if it were not for the movement of God repeatedly in the life of this nation. You see, there are three great awakenings that lie in our past as a peoples. If it were not for the movement of God in the great awakenings, we wouldn't be here today. It, the first one happened in the early 1700s, right after uh, the Revolutionary War. It actually helped to hold things together. It happened in the 1700s. Another one happened in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Another one happened at the end of the 1800s and came into the early 1900s. It is these radical tur- uh, turnings to God in Christ that have preserved and kept our nation from the downward slide that would destroy it. Some people would say there was actually a fourth Great Awaken that happened in the 60s and 70s uh, with the movement of the charismatic movement. What I'm saying is this. Vote for who you think is the best person in November, but do not expect your vote to save America. There's only one way, God will rescue this country, and it is when the people of God get serious about being right with him and being righteous in the relationships he's given us and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ that one heart at a time, this country will turn back to God. I'm just being frank with you. They failed to do that in Jesus' day, and the result was absolute destruction. This is how practical, how real, how, how incredible these words are. They have the potential to impact our lives and our country even today. So that, my friends, is the context. What time is it? Oh my, that's the context. I got a little little on a little bit there. Let me just touch on two other things really quick and that'll help set the tone for where we're going. Not only the context, but I wanna also talk a little bit about the audience that Jesus was speaking to and this is important. Uh, because it helps us to understand who the message was really designed for. And so here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 again, it says, seeing the what? The what? Very good. So we see there are an enormous group of people there, uh, huge crowds. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, uh, it says that who? Okay, so his disciples came to him. And so the reality is this, Jesus goes up as rabbi, sits down in the position of authority, his disciples rise up and come forward. It's almost as if the ones he had personally handpicked were standing there, and just beyond them were the the masses, the crowds of people. So the question is, to whom was Jesus speaking? These words in this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Was he speaking only to the disciples? Was he speaking only to the crowds? Or was he speaking to everyone? Well, I think you're right which means he was speaking to not only those who had already chosen to follow him, but he was also speaking to those others who he wanted to follow him. So on one level, correct, he was speaking to the crowds and he was speaking to the disciples. Again, at the very end of the message, it said this, and when Jesus finished these sayings, it was the crowds who were astonished at his teaching, where he was teaching as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So on one level, Jesus Christ has, in this thing called the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest evangelistic message that has ever been proclaimed. He was challenging people to come into relationship with himself. Notice how John MacArthur puts it. Dear old John, snowy-headed John, he's such a handsome guy. In Matthew chapter 5, in this part, he says these words. Everything Jesus had spoken on this occasion was spoken publicly to the multitudes. His intention was to drive them to a recognition of their sin and thus to the need of a savior, Jesus, which he came to be. Until they believed in him, the demands of the sermon could only show them how terribly far from meeting God's standards they were. This masterful evangelistic sermon is designed to confront men with their desperate condition of sinfulness. Now, John's always just a little wordy, so let me give it to you a little more cleanly. C.S. Lewis said this, No man knows how bad he is until he tries very hard to be good. Does that make sense? No man knows how bad he is until he tries really hard to be good. And so the Sermon on the Mount is going to challenge moral people to be better than they could ever be in their own strength. And in that process, we are going to realize our inability. Our, we can't do this. We can't live up to this. What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus. And hence, people will find their need for a relationship with the Savior. But those who do know Christ, those who have a relationship with Jesus, who experience grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, can not only find these words and live them out, but they can have joy in it. It is the good life we're talking about now. And so we have this reality. But let me show you that Jesus was not only speaking to the masses as an evangelistic appeal for them to trust him. That's seen, I think, in the Beatitudes. We'll talk about that next week. It's also seen in the four final illustrations in chapter 7 where we are shown that there are... um, Two ways, a narrow way and a broad way, make your choice. It's shown in two kinds of trees. There's good fruit, bad fruit, make your choice. It's shown in two kinds of individuals, uh, the doer and the devoted, make your choice. And the last one is those two builders, one who builds on the rock, which is Christ, and those who build on the sand, which is their own ways. So at the end of this evangelistic appeal, he's actually challenging people to make a decision to follow him. So that is in there. But most of the message... Most of the actual message is designed for dedicated followers of Jesus Christ. So let me again show you the message, where we're going, and this will kind of give you an idea of what to expect over the next uh, days and weeks as we are together. So he begins with the introduction to the good life, kingdom living. And that's chapter 5, verses 3 through 20. And he begins with this invitation to the good life called the Beatitudes. Again, we will talk about that next week. And he ends with those imperatives of choose which way you're going to go. Is it going to be the narrow road or the broad road? Is it going to be good fruit or bad fruit? Is it going to be a devoted life or simply a doer's life? Is it going to be building on the rock, which is Christ, or are you going to choose to continue to build on the shifting sands of your life? So that is the evangelistic aspects, I believe, prominent. Now, the rest is dedicated to those of us who know and love Jesus Christ and want to live lives that honor him. And so, we will then look at the influence of the good life being salt and light, the implications of the good life, God's loving rule in your heart and life. And then we're actually going to move on to the instructions of how to live this thing called the good life. And here is a sample. This is the one on anger. Uh, It is a growing life of peace. That's what God wants his people to possess. He wants us to be known as people of peace and even peacemakers. And so what he's going to challenge us to become is people of peace. But in addition to that, here's the rest. Wow. A growing life of fidelity, a growing life of integrity, a growing life of goodness, a growing life of selfless love, a growing life of generosity, a growing life of contentment, a growing life of graciousness, and a growing life of trust in a very good father. How many does that sound like a good deal to? It is called the good life for a reason. It encompasses peace, fidelity, integrity, goodness, selflessness, generosity, contentment, graciousness, and trust. If that's not appealing to you, then let me show you what he wants to rescue you from. He wants you to, he to help you to become free from anger and unforgiveness. He wants you to help you get free from sexual lust and disgust. He wants you to help become free from domination and verbal control. He wants to help you to become free from fairness issues, grudges, and payback. Become free from the need to always win and be right. To become free from greed and duplicity. To become free from anxiety and fear. To become free from controlling and condemnation and not worrying about reprimand when you go before your good dad. Maybe that sounds better to you. I don't know. But this is what Jesus Christ holds out to the people of God. You want to be salt? You want to be light? You want to see people glorify your Father in heaven because you have led them to Christ? It's as we are transformed into the likeness of Christ that that happens. I got a little blank in here, number three. This is what I would call the interior of the good life. The interior of the good life is our secret life of devotion with God, a life of generosity, a life of prayer, and a life of fasting. That's what's in there. That's actually the, uh, the means by which we will ultimately experience these qualities in our lives. So this is where we're going over the next few weeks. How many are wanting to go on this journey? Okay, good. Eight of us, awesome. Um, hopefully more of us. Uh, Just before you say, I'm looking forward to this, let me finish. Let me talk to you a little bit about the power, the power of this message. And this is ultimately profound and it's gonna be ultimately challenging. You see, Jesus was always going after the heart. Never satisfied to simply go after the externals. Jesus always desired to go after the heart because he knew if he controlled the heart under obedience to him that everything else follows. And so the heart is the heart of the matter with Jesus Christ. And so here we have us. I'm going to draw a picture of you. Notice you're happy today. That, that, that will change as we move forward. I think it will get kind of squiggly and straight, and then maybe even a frown as we move forward. You see, this, this image is going to show up repeatedly as we do this series together. You see, we are in an evangelical church. An evangelical church is a church that highly values truth. Amen. Amen. We believe in teaching the mind. We believe in giving people the understanding that they need in order to be transformed. That's good. But we have a preoccupation with the head. We're not just head, we're hard. But we have a preoccupation with the head, which means this we teach, we teach, we teach, and all you have to do is, is tell me exactly what is the right answer. And if you can give me the right answer, we must be good, right? Isn't that how that works? And so, we have this idea in our circles that if I can get the right answer from you, obviously you understand it and your life is transformed. The only problem with that is it's not true. Jesus never said, teach them everything I've ever commanded you. He never said that. He said this, teach them obedience to everything I have commanded you. And by the way, the Sermon on the Mount contains over 50 imperatives, which are command verbs. So, the Sermon on the Mount is included in what Jesus wanted taught. But it's the heart. It's the heart. It's the heart. Say that with me. It's the heart. It's the heart. It's the heart. It's your heart that God wants. He doesn't simply want your head, He wants you to know the truth. But there's a large difference often in our lives between the right answer and what is truly, truly real in our hearts and in our lives. And if we're not careful, we can think we're good with God because we have the right answers. The Pharisees had all the right answers. But their lives were way out of kilter with it. And when, our, when we have the right answers and our lives are not living in cooperation with what is right, that's called hypocrisy. You know what you're saying. You you say all this stuff about yourself, but I don't see it in your life. And it's only as we bring what is right and what is ultimately going to be real in our obedience to that truth that life transformation begins to happen and we become the kind of people that God wants us to be. So we're gonna go after teaching truth, amen? But we're also going to go after the heart throughout this series. What is real in my experience? What is real in my life? Because if we're not careful, we can wind up as the Pharisees. This people honors me with their lips, but they are far from me. God forbid. God forbid. So we're going to use this dimension to keep working forward. Uh, I'm going to give some study notes after each Sunday to, to do some brainstorming. And then we're also going to give you some notes to do some heartstorming. And the goal is to figure out exactly where you are in relationship to what is right from the word and what is real in your life. One last way of looking at it. Think of it like an iceberg. 20% of the iceberg sticks above water. 80% is below water. And so often, this is the part people see of us. This is the part. This is the part that looks good. It's, it's uh, clean. It's bright. It's happy. I'm good. It's all good. But really, it's the 80% that people don't see that is the real us, isn't it? That's what makes Jesus' teachings here so profound. You see, the real us, the part that people don't see, the part of us that maybe we don't even see, this is where our belief system lies. It's here that we truly value things. What is it you really value? I can tell you exactly what you value by what you do. Because what you do shows me what you value. That's how that works. So down here also are our experiences in life. These things have a way of coloring us or changing how we view things. And down here also is the reality of what we truly love. As we make our way through this series, we're going to use this diagram over and over again to kind of challenge our thinking of not only what is true but is what is real in our own experience. And what you're going to discover as we go down this pathway is you're going to keep coming to this place where you're going to be challenged with do I really love you, Jesus? do I really love you, Jesus? Because the things in my value system are being challenged. Am I going to choose my own way, or am I going to choose what you want, Jesus? You see, underlying everything is you are to love the Lord your God with all of your, that's right, and you're even to love your neighbor as yourself. So, up here are our actions, what people see. Here are our attitudes. And down here is our affections. Our affections will determine our attitudes and will determine our actions. The goal is to get into our hearts. It's not enough to simply come to church and sit. We want to be people that honors the Lord. I hope hope you want to be one who honors the Lord. Here we go. I'm I'm done and I'm going to pray. C.S. Lewis said this. We need not despair, even in our worst, for our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. Think about that. Let that chew on you. (laughs) And we'll see you next week uh, as we open up the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes together. Take some time to read it this week. I'm gonna pray for us, and you are free to go. Father, um, we are walking into very holy ground, sanctified, set apart, holy, perfect, beautiful ground. And for fallen people like ourselves, this stuff is very threatening. But I pray it won't be. I pray that your grace will be more than amazing. I I pray that the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives will be awesome. I pray that every one of us will be different at the end of this series together because we understand better what it means to know you, honor you, and love you. Thank you, Jesus. In your wonderful name. And the people of God said, God bless you. Here we go.